So I'd like to follow along with our theme a little bit more. This theme of entering the Dharma stream, getting more of a sense of what that really means and perhaps what that actually feels like directly, having more of a direct experience of that. And I'm just wondering if you're just starting to get a get a feel, get a sense of what this is about, what this is like. Talk about entering the stream. Starting to get a feel for that more. Because flow, flow of experience. Mm. Rather than trying to get a particular experience. Because oftentimes we can think that the spiritual path has a goal, you know, as a certain destination. Of course, we call it enlightenment, you know call it, um, you know, realization, different words for it, nibbana, you know, and then we imagine that there's some kind of experience that we're supposed to have. And of course, this sets up, you know, the continual leaning out of our experience, whereas, you know, all of the practices point us back, just back here again and again and again. Every time we find ourselves leaning out through some kind of (coughs) idea some kind of uh, conceptual framework that we think about how things are supposed to be, just come back. Come back into this present moment through the senses, you know, through the direct experience, and see what's actually here without our thoughts about it, without our whole conception about it. Because we build up, we build up these um, constructions you know, uh, that we take to be the world and our world and our life, but, but we have to break those down. Sometimes you talk about getting underneath the mental constructions. And so very much what this practice is about, and you could see it in your meditation, you know, we're wanting to untangle ourselves from the thoughts, from the way that we get, we get caught in the sense of meaning and conclusions and ideas and beliefs and all of that, what, what's there when we start to loosen that structure, loosen those constructs? There's this wonderful story from one of the Buddha's discourses um, where he really makes the point of this. It's, um, and it's in the Maj- uh, a series of uh, his talks called the Majjhima which are called the Middle-Length Sayings. This is from that collection. And the Buddha says, Suppose a man were wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with poison, and his friends brought a surgeon to treat him. The wounded man said to the surgeon, I won't let you pull out this arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was, and then there's this whole list, a noble one, a Brahmin, a merchant, or a worker, until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether he was tall or short or middle height, whether he was dark, brown, or golden-skinned, whether he lived in a village, a town, or a city, whether he used a longbow or a crossbow, whether he used a feather from a vulture, a crow, a hawk, a peacock, or a stork. And he goes on, what kind of arrow was it? Hoof-tipped, curved, barbed, calf-toothed, or oleander? Or whether the bowstring was from fiber, or reed, or sinew, or hemp, or bark? 
In the meantime, while he waits to have all of this figured out and known, he dies. <laughs> right? And the Buddha's point is, the Buddha says, this isn't beneficial. It's not helpful. And so the whole of the Buddha's teaching is really looking at what is beneficial for more happiness, for more freedom, for more ease, more contentment, and what's not beneficial. And I really love this particular story because he makes such a point, you know, of all the things that this man could know about in terms of, in terms of what wounded him, but all of it is completely irrelevant. <laughs> it's completely irrelevant to this man's life to the healing of his life. And that seems to be our biggest obstacle in our meditative path and our meditative awareness is to see how we get caught. We get so identified through the mind, through the thinking mind, the conceptual mind, and believe what the mind is telling us. And so, therefore, we're always a bit away from our direct experience. If we're in our thoughts about it, or constructions, or stories about it, we're not really in our experience. So, it's a, another metaphor that I like is like the one maybe you've heard. It's like eating the menu before you taste the food. So, if you go into a restaurant and you're looking over the menu and go, Oh, no, I don't like that. No, I don't want that. Oh, I've tasted that. Oh, I've had that before. It's the same kind of thing, because you don't know what it, you don't know what the experience is going to be like of any of those things. But we're already eating all of those things on the menu and saying, no, I don't like them, rejecting, oh yeah, I'd like that. But the actual experience is going to be a completely different experience. And, And again, it's not that we aren't going to pick and choose, and we're not going to have preferences about what we like and what we don't like. The key is to see that that's all it is. They're just preferences. And we get very, very attached to our preferences. We get very identified with our preferences. This is one of those um, great teachings from the third Zen patriarch. It's, a, it's about... Um, 25 different verses, but I just, the very first beginning of the first verse is so pertinent. This was actually a little booklet of these 20 verses that were, it was handed out once uh, when Ramdas was first starting to teach in the um, late 70s, early 80s. He printed them up in a little tiny book because he thought they were so important. Uh, the verses on the faith mind from the third, third Zen patriarch, patriarch in uh, 606 A.D. China, who says, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. <laughs> now, what that really means is for those who are not attached to their preferences. We all have preferences. We're all going to have our likes and dislikes. But what we want to see is how we actually get attached to those, where we get into a way of controlling and manipulating our reality rather than coming more fully into the direct experience and then from there picking and choosing and getting a sense of how we want to proceed, how we want to navigate in our lives. He says, when attached love and hate 
are both absent. Everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. He says, if you wish to see the truth and hold no opinions for or against anything. Again, it's again not to, of course we're going to have our opinions, but it's the attachment to them that then become a way of defining our whole sense of ourselves and others and the world. And we put ourselves in a kind of prison, in a kind of box, kind of cage, and we can feel quite trapped in that. And so the Buddha and these ancient traditions are pointing us towards the, paying attention to the way these conceptual frameworks get uh, constructed and to see if we can start to let go, to untangle, to untether ourselves from those identifications. I mean, an example is uh, that I see a lot in people's meditation practice, particularly when they're doing longer retreats, is when I was talking earlier about our relationship to pleasure and pain, when people start having some discomfort in the body or some painful uh, sensation in the body, there's an immediate way that the mind just repels that. It just, just slips off of it and doesn't want anything to do with that discomfort. And there's a way the mind then identifies it as pain, as painful. And then, of course, as you were saying, the whole construction that can start to build if I'm having that pain in my body, and therefore the, 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 the story becomes real, that you know, if I, if I continue to sit here or I feel this, you know, my back is going to go into a cramp and then I'm not going to be able to walk and I won't be able to walk for the rest of my life. And we're just in that whole story around it rather than taking the opportunity to just feel What's actually there? What am I calling pain? What am I having this whole story about? And so there's a way that we can actually bring our attention more fully into the sensation and feel it. Sometimes it means breathing with it a little bit more. Breathing and opening and softening and letting go of that that tight resistance and that tight construction we have about what we think this means. And so often, the experience isn't anything like what our mind is making up about it. And we can start to experience ourselves in a very, very different way when we start to break down some of those barriers, some of those ideas we have about what our experience means and what it's like. Letting go of this concept. There's this wonderful poem from... uh, Mathilde of Magdeburg, old um, a poem that go, where she says, Of all that God has shown me, I can speak just the smallest word, not more than a honeybee takes on her foot from an overspilling jar. Mm-hmm. I can speak just the smallest word, not more than a honeybee takes on her foot from an overspilling jar. That's very much in contrast to this man with the poison arrow. Right? He had to know, well, at least the, the metaphor, the simile was that he had to know everything. And McTilde says, no word, no word, the s- just the smallest word 
Because those words or those concepts sometimes can just be like boulders in our experience. You know, they just land. And then, you know, the water just splashes out. But, you know, what, what's this the delicacy? Just the delicacy, the subtlety, the, the tenderness of our experience, just as it is, without that... The, the, right now I have the image of the boulder, you know, which just crashes it all. Kind of. This coming more and more into the subtlety. Another teacher, Sansa Neem, some of you might have heard of this great Zen master who was actually teaching here in Berkeley. The master who gave the teaching continually on don't know mind. Right? Stay and don't know. Because again, we, we, we always start, and people have already said today, you know, how we start to fabricate this knowing. I mean, I love that you understood that that was a drop in the bucket because it actually saved us from having to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, how interesting that, you know, you were a good example of how the mind wants to know. And we want to we want to know that, and yet we also want to have the freedom to pull back from it. So we don't have to be engaged in it if we don't want to. So the so Sansamim says primary point, the primary point, he says, primary point's name is don't know. Some people say primary point's name is mind or Buddha or God or nature or substance, or absolute energy, holy, or consciousness. But true primary point has no name, no form, no speech, no word, because it is before thinking. Only when you keep a don't know mind 100% don't know, at that time you and everything have already become one. At that time, you and everything have already become one. No more distinctions. You're in the ocean. You're right in the ocean. So I ask you, when you keep don't know, at that time, uh, he says, are this stick and you the same or different? So, because the Zen master always carries a stick, right? So he says, is this stick you uh, stick and you are the same or different? So he's just showing that if you if you don't even think of the concept of the stick hitting you on the shoulder, what's the difference? It's just direct experience, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just being hit on the, the shoulder and feeling the, the sensation of that. So this is really so much of our practice that keeps us a sense of being away from our experience, outside of our experience, are these mental constructions that we make. Another metaphor that has helped me a lot from the beginning of my practice was the story that I heard about this um, caveman who went into a cave who was an artist, a painter, and he would go into the cave and he would paint these amazing scenarios on the cave walls. And this one day he was painting a tiger. And he was just getting finished with the tiger. And he did such an accurate representation of the tiger that he actually looked like a tiger. And he looked at him and went, oh my god, a tiger! And he ran out of the cave. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, And I love that because that's what we do. 
<laughs> we're constantly painting these, these, these dangerous kinds of images on our mind and then getting frightened and running the other way. <laughs> and all it is is a painting, like a painting or, or you know, uh, blips or, you know, neurons firing or whatever we want to call it, you know, unconsci- in our consciousness. And we get so frightened. We get terrified. But is anything really there? You probably know how uh, Downton Abbey, this wonderful TV series, has kind of taken America by storm. If you don't know about Downton Abbey and you really love English um, uh, stories of the oldest, uh, as, um, um, what's the word? Aristocracies. Aristocracies. Aristocracy. This is a wonderful, wonderful TV series, Downton Abbey. And there was an interview with the creator, Julian Fellows, um, just a few months ago. And of course, he went from being a very unknown screen um, writer to somebody extremely popular and successful. And he says um, that his anxiety went from, will I ever make it to, might I lose everything? (laughs) He says, I think I'm more fearful of the future now, he said, sipping his tea. I always feel that there's some giant hand about to lean in and snatch it all away from me, saying, this wasn't meant for you. (laughs) Emma, his wife, has this completely different quality of living in the present. It's just been very helpful for me to live with someone who doesn't think, oh my God, what if it all stops tomorrow? Of course, it's absurd to live your life dreading some unspecified disaster. And I really, that's such a, you know, he really points to it. He really says it there because, you know, his, he's very, you know, he's very successful in this moment. You know, none of us know what's going to happen in the next moment. I mean, none of us, all of us are, we live on this edge of um, insecurity. We don't know. So while we've, while things are good, let's appreciate it. <laughs> You know, it's like, feel that, feel the gratitude, feel the blessing, feel the joy of what's here now. Because yes, of course, things are changing all the time. But isn't it interesting the way our mind can create these different scenarios, and then that becomes our present reality, because we're so frightened of what we imagine could happen in the future. And then missing the blessing and the, the, the beauty of this, of this present moment. And even when our present moment may be difficult, maybe even when there's something going on that is painful or is difficult, there seems to be this quality of presence and uh, our, our capacity to ground into our experience, which then really shifts the whole way we experience that difficulty. There's a way that the awareness and the presence and the kindness and the connection brings a whole different quality to the way that we're relating to that difficulty, whether it's something happening in our health, in our body, or whether it's something happening to somebody else, or the situation in the world, whatever it is. We find more and more of a capacity, we call it the capacity of heart, or the capacity of our compassion, 
to be able to meet that in a whole different way. So even in the difficulty, it doesn't have to be the way we imagine. Things really change as we bring more and more awareness and capacity to be present with what's occurring. So our practice really is this returning all the time, returning back to the body, using the body as our anchor, using the body as our resource, as a way to ground and find ourselves again. Because we can get so kind of disembodied, particularly if we're very much in our thoughts and in our futurizing and the memories of our past. We get very kind of lost from a sense of really being here. And so the Buddha taught as our first reference point is the body. The body and the breath. The breath in the body. Breath and body. Our first reference point is a way to come back. And that's why I've been doing some sensing practice with you as we come, as we come out of the meditation. Because sometimes we can kind of, you know, kind of get a, a little bit lost in a sense of our bodies, too, when we're meditating. And to, to find our body again, find the soles of your feet, find your hands, your arms, your legs. Where is your belly? Where is your breath? In fact, this is a practice that I learned and do often in the morning when I first wake up, when I'm first coming back into consciousness from the, from the deep sleep or the, the uh, dream state. And just to kind of locate myself again in presence, in awareness, feel my feet and feel my, my body on the bed or you know the, the contact of the body on the bed and I know where I am and take some breaths, really coming back into presence, into awareness, before I start my day. And I don't, you know, maybe some of you are like me, you know, once I get up and I start moving, I can start moving pretty quickly, you know, through my activities and things that I do. And so this has been a wonderful practice to help me stay more grounded and, and more connected, more present as I, as I begin my day. And these are, these are practices that can help us at any time that we feel that we're starting to dissipate our sense of presence and our sense of knowing where our body is and knowing how we're moving in time and space. Really important practices for us as we're starting to navigate with a more open and a more relaxed sense of being in the world when we're not operating out of our own our old defensive mechanisms. Because that's usually when we're caught in our habits, we're also caught in some of the defenses, the rigidity of how we ha- think we have to move through the world. And oftentimes it's a dangerous world. You know, it's a world where there's a lot of threat or potential conflict or potential difficulty. So depending on our worldview, we can start to move through the world already defensive, already for somebody to say that thing or look at us the wrong way or, you know, we're gonna, I know we're gonna ha- I'm going to have that conflict with that person or that person's been really difficult in my life and I don't even really want to open to that person and, you know, all the different ways that we can just start to hold ourselves. We relax that. We relax that more and more into a quality of relaxed presence. 
and then see how, how things are as we walk in the world, as we, as we start to meet people and the things in our life from this different kind of location, this different perspective. This is a way of being where we're not, we're not engaged in our usual reference point of our mind. Because the mind is the past. When we talk about our conceptual mind, we're talking about the past. It's all based in memory. All the concepts are memories that are concepts that we've learned in the past, and all the stories and the fabrications are based on what we've learned in the past. We have our whole personal history that comes with us into the present moment, which gives rise to a lot of the way that our personality gets constructed and who we take ourselves to be. And if we're not using those reference points to define ourselves as we move in the world, then who am I? Who am I? And as I question who I am, then who are these other people? (laughs) Who are these other people that I have so well constructed and so well identified and the world so well identified? It's like, well, then what? Then what moves through the world? And what do I perceive, and what do I see, and what do I sense, and what do I come in contact with? It's a very different way of being, a, different, very, a very different way of knowing myself as I move through the world as well. We might say this is also a way, a diff- we gain a different kind of knowledge. We're so used to accumulating knowledge through our mind, through our learning, through the accumulated data of what we know. And in this culture in America, there's so much uh, emphasis on intelligence and education and success and, and, edu- and, and high, higher and higher education. And so we have very well-developed minds for the most part, we're, we're particularly around here, we're pretty well-educated people. And so there's more tendency to then move from the thinking mind, to organize our lives through the thinking mind. And so this way of letting go and coming more fully into direct experience is so valuable for us. As we start to know our world and gain knowledge about ourselves and others in this world from a very different location, from the location of awareness itself. This, 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 uh, under this knowing that awareness itself is the source of our intelligence, our true intelligence that opens us up to the vastness of this entire universe as we come more and more into direct experience. I'll read again the quote that I had in my write-up for the day long from John O'Donohue, who said, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. Just that. Does that touch you in the same way that it touches me? I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise 
of its own unfolding. <coughs> We're talking about a way of living with surprise. We actually start getting surprised. Because the more we let go of the knowing, our mind that is constantly telling us how everything is and who I am and who everybody else is, as I let go of that, I've got to be surprised. (laughs) Because it's like, oh, oh, hi. Oh, I didn't know you were going to be here. Oh, who are you today? Who are you showing up as? Oh, how did I get here? Yesterday, for example, I noticed that, I noticed this happening, and sometimes I don't know whether this happened just because, you know, what I'm, what I'm teaching, I'm starting to take in more. But I, my, I have this very nice uh, wristwatch, and the battery went dead. And, and I'm leaving town in a week, for a, for a few weeks, and I really wanted to have my wristwatch for my trip. So I just had to take a quick trip into San Rafael. It was about a 15-, 20-minute drive and then back to go to the jeweler because I knew it would take about a week or so to get this battery put into the watch. So I just jumped in the car, no thought about it. I just I jumped in the car, drove to San Rafael. Usually I'm organizing my day and can I fit this in my day and do I have time for this? And I just jumped in the car and went to the jeweler And on my way back, I was wondering whether there was some other reason I was out here. Because usually I don't do things so spontaneously. So I kept imagining, oh, maybe I'm going to run into somebody, or maybe, you know, there's something else I'm going to remember that I have to do. And And as I was driving home, I was just in this very open place of waiting for some surprise, because I didn't know why I was outside. I didn't know why I was in my car driving in the middle of the day when I never do things like that. I'm so, so pretty much more organized because of my schedule. So I'm just driving along, and, oh, well, I guess I'm just driving home. And I got to Fairfax, and then I was going for there. I said, oh, I guess I'm not going anywhere else. <laughs> and I drove home and got home, and I went, oh, okay, a trip to the jeweler. And and at no knowing at any point whether something else, I would maybe go to the store, or I'd remember this, or I'd run into a friend, or I decide I wanted to go for a walk because it was such a beautiful day. Just like that. Really open to that that flow and being surprised. I was just really so surprised. And it sounds so ordinary in a way. It sounds so simple. But it's so different from how we're usually so directed. I've got to get here, and I've got to get back by this time, and if I see somebody, I can't talk to them, and I don't have time to meet them, and you know how sometimes our lives have become so much more structured. So learning to live like the river flows, what would this mean for us? One more little story of this coming more and more into the simplicity, into the directness of our experience. Four monks were meditating in a monastery. All of a sudden, the prayer flag on the roof started flapping. The younger monk came out of his meditation and said, the flag is flapping. A more experienced monk said, 
The wind is flapping. A third monk who had been there for more than 20 years said, Mind is flapping. The fourth monk, who was the eldest, said, Mouths are flapping. (laughs) (laughs) What's really going on? The mind makes so many interpretations, so many ideas of things. And of course, getting really, you know, I'm, I'm really cool. Um, mind is flapping. <laughs> so I think I'll end there and um, just open it up just a little bit and see what does this evoke in you? What does this start to move in you as we talk <coughs> about this, this potential, this possibility for us to, what I call moving below the mind. Sometimes I call it going below or beyond the mind. You know, so the, so our, our mental constructs aren't so much in the forefront. So any kind of questions, any kind of comments, anything this might be stirring for you, or even your own experiences, how, how you've known this for yourself as you have been practicing. I, you know what? I think we'll use the hand. Is it okay if we use the mic? I, sometimes people aren't so comfortable with that, but people will be able to hear you a little bit better. And let's make sure it's working okay, too. You want to test it? Test it? Is it working? Yes. On. Hello. Yes. Yeah. Can okay. you hear me? We can, but we need to turn turn the volume up just a little bit. Katie's always right here, just when we need her. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yes. Let's test it. You can talk now. Okay. Test, test, test. Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, we just have to hold it up. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Um, well. Um, since I found out about liberation and uh, non-duality, this is a few years ago, and this is one way of practicing towards that goal. Um, you know, um, my mind wants to get there, basically. That's what it is. Uh-huh. Okay. And it just, you know, strives to, you know, get into that place, whatever it's called. But I know it's a mind stuff still. It's not the real thing because that's what I read. I'm an intellectual and I read a lot. I read Mm -hmm. a lot about different philosophies of life. And um, so I'm kind of lost about how to let that go. I mean, sometimes I hear that you have to be in the presence of a teacher who has that consciousness to be able to transmit that to his pupils. Because intellectually, I understand what it is, but I have not realized it or assimilated Mm -hmm. that. You see, one of the difficulties right now, even in the way you're speaking, is you're still positing that there's an it. You're still positing that there is somewhere to get to, and there's an it, and you're not there. You see, that's a whole construction. 
So, so in this practice, all that I'm inviting you to do is just come back to your body and feel one breath. Let go of those ideas. Those are just more ideas. Even, you know, that you have to be in the presence of a teacher and, you know, there's somewhere you need to get to that you're not there and, you know, that you've understood a lot and you don't understand yet. Let that all go. (laughs) More ideas. And then, see, this is what's so beautiful about this practice is just come to one breath. Just breathe again. Yeah, just like that. Just breathe again. And how is that? How is it just to breathe again? What's your response to that? It's good. It's calming. You know, it brings me to the present, of course. Yeah. And But the mind doesn't stay there a lot of the times. Right. Because I think I'm supposed to have this incredible experience. You know, that whatever, this total absence of thought and, you know, the world looks, you know, everything merges into one and things like that. Yeah, all those things that you've read, all those things that you've heard. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and you also have this idea that the mind is supposed to stay here all the time. That's another idea that you have. No, it's not true. So, so we do a practice, so that's why we actually call this a practice, because it's the practice of returning. Each time you notice that your mind has gone off again, just come back. You do it with kindness, you do it with gentleness, without making anything out of it. Just returning. And that's it. It's so simple. That's all that's being asked of you right now. So if you can remember that, really, from today, I think that would really serve you as a place to begin from, from this moment. We're only really interested in this moment. Okay. Just you. this moment. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate your question. Yeah. I almost have the opposite experience in that I, I feel like I'm just um, a little bug on a leaf floating down a, rib, a little you know, creek. And um, I'm just kind of letting everything happen, just letting it happen, I guess, not really. And I sometimes feel like I need to make more of an effort, and I don't want to become lazy. Mm-hmm. So do you have any words of I want to know why you think you need to make more of an effort. I just don't want to become lazy about it. What makes you think you would? Because I have been in the past. <laughs> <laughs> because you've been lazy in the past. Yeah. Uh huh. So you're so you're you're suspicious of yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let go of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, in a way, it's another idea that could actually keep you feeling somewhat contracted. Like, oh, oh, I got to be careful. I've got to b- make effort because I might get lazy. Mm-hmm. And you're already in a contracted state. Mm-hmm. It's just another idea, mm-hmm. right? So why not? Keep going the way you are and then find out what happens. And if you actually find yourself getting la- lazy, then you can correct it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's much better to make a corrective with something that's already occurring than before it happens. 
<laughs> if we're correcting something before it happens, maybe that thing doesn't need to be corrected. You see? And that's often the way we live our life. You know, we're, we're already assuming that there's a problem before it's even arisen, and then we're correcting it, and we spend our time doing that, but there's actually no problem. <laughs> you get that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, it's again getting the, kind of behind the way that that whole thing gets constructed. That you're late. You're, you know, that you're probably going to be lazy, so you need to make effort. Is that true? <laughs> you know, even if it is true, we do better to wait until it's happening to correct it. And sometimes it, sometimes it is true. I mean, we do we do know some stuff that might be coming down. But uh, what I try to tell myself now is I can deal with it when it happens. I don't need to deal with it That's right. in advance. But mm-hmm. that, that doesn't mean I'm making it up necessarily, mm-hmm. but I might be. But to be able to wait and see. So what you're saying is that there's some self-understanding and that you know that there may be a tendency to, in this case, to use this example, to be lazy about something. Or... Maybe some kind of problem. Maybe some kind of problem that's coming down the line. It could be anything, really. But um, I, I, I had the, a similar thing where I, during the second meditation, you said, "Don't watch it if you have a goal or if you have a destination." And, and I just recently made made a, a goal, made a you know a vow to study Shanti Deva, and so I thought, oh my God, I've done it again, and how can I let go of this goal? And then I thought, I don't have to hold on to that goal. I will do it because I've thought about it so much now, and I'm doing it. But um, it was terrible to think of letting that go, letting that goal go. I, I felt like I I had to have the goal, mm-hmm. so to trust my so I, I think sometimes we do need to make a little effort. Yes, I'm not saying you don't need to make effort if it's needed. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe it's not needed. Yeah. In this case, it wasn't yeah. actually necessary. Yeah. 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 And sometimes we make too much effort. We can just make a little bit, and then that's enough, and then we can let it go. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So we're really want to, wanting to attend to just what's here and then respond. And then respond, what's needed? How, what, what, how much of the ingredient is needed in this moment? Because we're actually connected to reality. It's not an idea. It's not an idea. Here and then there. Um, what she was saying really hit home with me because I feel like I'm very lazy when it comes to meditation practice. And I slack off. And that's why I do this uh, during my spring break. I'm a teacher. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I was kind of thinking, how can I make some <coughs> preparations now that I can hopefully, you know, continue to work on and adhere to daily? And I was wondering if you had uh, some ideas, you know, something that I really like the, the one that you... Uh, put forth about when you wake up in the morning, you, mm-hmm. you do like a body scan and you get in your body. So do you have anything else that, because I, you know, I wake up, I can't meditate for a half hour. I've mm-hmm. got to go. And then when I get home, I mean, I know I'm making a lot of excuses up, but uh, just um, do you have any ideas that are, like I know I meditate during lunchtime around five or ten minutes. Um, 
Do you have any kind of uh, goals for people who are on the go and need to meditate more? I think, um, I think a helpful suggestion is to make a commitment to get into the meditation form every day, even if it's for two minutes. You know, just make a commitment that you will get into the posture and, and then see what happens. So, so in a way, that's actually really doable. And sometimes if you haven't been in the posture, even before you are going to go to sleep at night, just sit in the posture, even before you go to sleep, and then see what happens. Because usually, it's just getting into the posture that's the hard part. Once we're actually there, we like it. <laughs> but if you, if you make a commitment to just say, okay, I'm just going to get into the posture, even if I sit for one minute, that's enough. Mm-hmm. So I would try that if you're finding it's difficult to actually get into the form. Mm-hmm. And people find that that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Along with the sensing, diff- sensing at different times of the day, just sensing your body. Because it doesn't have to be a formal meditation practice. We're really wanting to encourage the mindfulness. So mindfulness just means knowing where you are, being present with your experience at any given time. So sometimes just wherever you are, just sensing yourself is, is, is the practice, is the mindfulness practice. Right? So the combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, giving yourself that chance, that moment to just give yourself some physical steadiness of being in the posture, mm-hmm. I think every day. It allows you, even if you just witness the chatter of your that's mind right. um, for just a few seconds, I mean, that's enough awareness to go, <laughs> oh yeah, my mind chatters. My mind chatters. All right, as long as I'm aware, my yeah. mind's just going. <laughs> That's right. And that would uh, be enough. You were mentioning something about the right ingredient. Can you repeat that one more time? Do you remember? Well, I was saying that by actually being connected to the present moment, mm-hmm. then we'll know how to respond to it with the right ingredients. Right. You know, otherwise it's still an imagination about what we think is going to be needed. I mean, even using your example of wanting to study Shantideva, which is a pretty, you know, a pretty uh, complex text, the Shantideva, you know, you know, for example, as you do it and as you get, a, get involved in it, you may, if you're staying very connected to yourself, you, could, you might come up with a thought that this is just too much. I don't want to do it. And you, but you're giving yourself that flexibility. Yeah. You give yourself, so that would be an ingredient. The ingredient would be, you know, yes, it's a good idea and it's something that I'd really like, but actually the timing isn't right. I'm not saying that that's true for you. I'm just saying as an example of the ways we want to stay kind of open. We, want to, we don't want to put ourselves in more boxes yeah. and then feel like we have to do something that we actually have more freedom and flexibility about. Yeah. That would be an example for of the ingredients. I'm okay. About. Yeah. My I think my ingredient is uh you just get a feeling in your belly when something's right. Yeah. And you know, if you can trust in that sense in your stomach. <laughs> yeah. It knows. <laughs> yeah, that gut, that yeah. gut feeling gut. for something. Yeah. Which is a very uh, a strong intuitive sense. Of, yeah. Mhm. Great. 
maybe just one or two, this, this over here. And, mm -hmm. I, I'm a planner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, the challenge for me is right now I'm facing a big decision. So I find myself playing out scenarios all the time about if I do this, then this may happen. If I do this, then this. So, and then I, and then I see that I'm doing it, and I come back. So, the challenge that that I find is how to plan mindfully, because it's future thinking. Yeah. And so, um, when you have a big decision to make, you you can stay in the moment. But the decision isn't getting made. Um, so I guess it's, that's my conflict. Planning needs to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm planning my schedule for 2014. You know, I mean, it, 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 it has to happen. Um, you're right, the decision doesn't get made because we don't know what's actually going to happen. We might have a decision, but it, something may completely change it all around, right? Because, the, because we're going along and future isn't here yet. But the, the thing about planning is that we, we over-plan. <laughs> you know, we only have to really think about something for a couple of minutes. Um, it doesn't take like days and days and days and days of planning, which is usually what happens because the plans are usually associated with some kind of fear or anxiety about all different kinds of things, whether I'm going to make the right decision, whether I'm going to do something wrong, whether somebody's going to be unhappy with me, whether, you know, what's going to happen if I... Da, da, da. So there's all this anxiety that's actually fueling the thinking. Mm -hmm. So it's very helpful to see if we can get in touch with the feeling around the planning as well. Because if there's fear or anxiety there, then that needs to be seen. Because that's going to feed more thoughts and more thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we could think about something for a couple minutes or a couple flashes of thought, or we can sit down for 10 minutes and look at our schedule, and it's done. We don't have to pick it up again. So, so the planning part isn't the issue. It's the repetitiveness of it. Right, right. Mm -hmm. you, know, it, it's, you know, it's said, really, that about 97% of our thoughts are irrelevant. <laughs> you know, about 3% of our thoughts actually make any real difference in our life, right? right. That's what we're looking at. Right. Mm -hmm. right, and I know that it's not, it's not particularly helpful, you know, to, to do that, to ruminate round and round, but, um, but that's what happens. So, yeah. yeah, so thank you. So I would ask the question, if you find yourself ruminating What's the feeling? Mm -hmm. What's the feeling here? Is there something I feel uneasy about or uncomfortable about? And then, then the next step is, this is the feeling. Where is that coming from? And then you're getting into thinking. Again, well, it does. So. It, it, what we call we call that. I call that a contemplative kind of reflection. Mm -hmm. You're actually reflecting with awareness. You're reflecting with presence. You're not just caught back in the anxiety again. You're actually connected to your body, connected to the feelings interested and curious about your experience, but really holding it with a lot of awareness, with a lot of presence, mm -hmm. and grounded. Mm -hmm. And that's also a practice. <laughs>
I really like the, uh, the concept of uh, don't know mind. Um, I think that's the primary thing I'm going to take away that I can um, enact in my own life. Uh, one of the dilemmas I face in my work is know-it-all mind. <laughs> um, and I'm a designer. I work with a lot of contractors and um, have clients, uh, some clients who like to design come up with designs themselves that are not going to work. And, uh, and there's a case where uh, the wife, and I pointed out to her why this seven-foot-tall fountain, 30 feet long, designed by her husband, is going to fall down. <laughs> and she says, it's his project. He needs to have something to do. You know, so she was implying, you know, I should just let it go. And in my mind, it's like I... You know, uh, so I go into worry mode. I go into how can I handle this diplomatically. Um, but just in general, I oversee a lot of people. And if I, if I feel like they are not uh, performing the job correctly, I feel like it's my job to kind of step in and, and see that it's going in correctly. Um, so I cause myself a lot of suffering because it's like uh, when I'm not talking to them, I go into worry, I go into all these different things. Um, but it's the, the actual communication with the people where I feel like I get lost in trying to communicate what I feel needs to be done uh, with just kind of stepping back and allow it to happen. So what has helped you when you said don't know mind is what's Going to, I'm taking away today. How has that imp- made an impact on you? Well, the don't, the don't know mind is within my own life in terms of thinking about uh, when I'm on my own thinking about uh, worry, stuff that I just worry about, mm-hmm. I can just uh, go into I don't know mm-hmm. and just let go of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing I could do about it right now. It's 3 a.m., I'm troubled about something that I'm fabricating that may happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Just let go of it. I don't know. I, I just like mm-hmm. the, the term, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think that if you apply that to what you were talking about with your clients, that's going to help also. Going to just keep resting back into that place because you don't know. You don't know because you see what happens is there gets to be an attachment and investment in your view. Right? So the investment is what creates some of that anxiety, that worry. So, so resting more into the, you know, I think this, what I'm thinking is, a, is, is probably going to be more helpful, but I don't know. So it starts to what, you start to release some of the attachment. And that's what will need to happen in order for the worry to calm down. Because the worry, the worry and the fear arises because of our investment in things having to be a certain way. Right. And then if they don't go that way, what's going to happen? Right. The world will fall apart. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> and so it's so important for us to begin to f- let ourselves feel that vulnerability, that agitation, that restlessness, because if we don't, we're going to keep trying to fix it. We're going to keep trying to fix everything so the world won't fall apart, rather than seeing that it's actually just the way that we're viewing it. And actually, the world's not going to fall apart. 
And even if it does, you're still going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you you for your comments and for your um, uh, participation in, in the discussion. And what I'd like to do is to enter into another practice phase because I really want you to, um, we're going to do some, go outside again and, and take some time for some walking. Because a, a lot has already been stirred up, and I can tell from the comments and I can tell from the things that you're offering that there's a, a lot that's being, uh, 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 what's the word, um, churned up in a way. You're looking at your experience in a different kind of way now. And so, by entering back into the silence and doing the walking and then for a half hour we'll do some walking and we'll come back and do another sitting and then we'll continue to explore a little bit about this, this letting go that's happening, this letting go of these constructs that really keep you in a sense of being more confined. And when you're confined, then that's going to keep you from getting wet. (laughs) So we're kind of letting go of some of those boundaries now and letting letting that, uh, letting ourselves be touched by the wetness of life. So, so let's see what, let's take another half an hour now for some walking. It's so beautiful, the air and the sun and the warmth. See if you can put your walking into the container of the path. 15 feet, walking back and forth so that that helps you look at your mind more directly. And then we'll come back. There'll be a bell in a half an hour.